All right, just take our Bibles this afternoon and turn to Genesis chapter 44. Genesis, the 44th chapter. Title of our study this afternoon sounds like a mystery, uh, detective mystery, the case of the missing cup. Well, I like mysteries, but uh, uh, I think Joseph's brothers thought this was a mystery, to to be sure. But uh, God has uh, strange ways of speaking to the hearts of people. Uh, The Bible's filled with uh, story after story about how God has used unusual methods to get the attention of certain people. For instance, you consider Moses. God used a burning bush to speak to this disgraced prince. You think of Balaam, and God used a donkey to speak to this pagan prophet. We think of King Saul, and God used the bleeding of some sheep to speak uh, to this wayward king. Uh, The widow of Zarephath, on Wednesday nights, we're studying Elijah. And this last Wednesday night, we looked at the widow of Zarephath. God used an empty meal barrel uh, and a dead son to speak to this poor widow. Uh, And then we think about Elijah himself. Elijah uh, used the angel's touch, a, a meal and a still small voice to speak to a discouraged prophet. I think of Naaman. God used an Israelite slave to speak to this great general. And then you go to the New Testament and you find Simon Peter and God used a rooster to speak to this fallen preacher. Well, we could go on and on and on with this list uh, for quite some time, but those are a few instances and they are enough to prove the point here that we're making that God uses strange ways to speak to the hearts of people. God will use whatever is necessary to penetrate the hard heart of humanity with the message that he wants a person to hear. And the passage that we have before us this afternoon has this same truth. The story of Joseph and his brothers continues to unfold here as God will use a simple silver cup to open the door to forgiveness and reconciliation. And after all the years, uh, God brings the guilty brothers of Joseph to a place of repentance through the ministry of Joseph's silver cup. Now we want to look at the events of this chapter here for a few minutes. And as we do, I want us to keep this truth in mind. That God also knows how to speak to you and to me. Uh, This really is a chapter that kind of unfolds like a mystery, as we said. I want us to see how God uses a simple silver cup to soften the hearts of Joseph's brothers. And we'll do this by looking at a conspiracy, a confrontation, and a confession. Notice, first of all, it involved a conspiracy. We're not going to read the uh, entire chapter this afternoon, but I want to point out from verses 1 through 9... First of all, that Joseph and his brothers had just enjoyed a time of celebration. The brothers still did not know who Joseph is, but he's dropping hints here and there. For instance, when he seats the brothers at the table, he seats them in their, uh, the order of their birth. And also Benjamin, 
uh, Joseph's only full brother, is given five times as much as the rest of the brothers during the meal. And then the meal is over, and the next day uh, it, it comes about, and the brothers are feeling pretty good about things. They're convinced that this prime minister of Egypt, that they were, uh, they had convinced him that they were not spies. They have rescued their brother Simeon from prison. They are about to return home with more grain for the family, all their money. And most importantly, they are returning home with their brother Benjamin, just as Judah had promised his father. So they're feeling pretty good about this. And the morning dawns and the men take their grain and their animals and they set out toward home. And no doubt they're filled with excitement about going home to their families and to their children. No doubt they're congratulating themselves over the successful mission to Egypt. But what they don't know is that God is working behind the scenes to bring them once again face to face with a sin that was some 22 years old by now. And while the men are preparing to leave, Joseph tells them, or tells the steward of his house, the steward of his house to prepare the grain that they need. He ordered them to give them as much as they could carry. We're told that in verse 1. And he tells the steward to give them the money back. And then he tells this steward to do something very strange. Tells him to take his personal cup and place it in the sack that belonged to Benjamin. We see that in verse 2. This is done, and the men set out toward home, and when they've gone a while, Joseph sends the steward out after them to stop them and to confront them about the cup that's in Benjamin's sack. Now the steward follows them, and he accuses them of rewarding evil for good. He accuses them of stealing Joseph's cup, we see that in verse 6. The brothers deny the charge. They seek to defend their honor in verse 7. And they remind the steward that they have plenty of money, so it isn't likely that they would steal the cup in verse 8. They're also sure of their innocence that they make some very strong promises. They swear that if the cup is found among them, the guilty brother will die and will rest, and the rest will become slaves to the Egyptians. He says that in verse 9. Now this is a strange way for Joseph to treat his brothers. In this passage, God uses Joseph as an instrument to draw these men to the place of repentance and restoration. Years before, these men had conspired against Joseph. They had done that to, uh, to get rid of him. They conspired to Joseph's harm. Now the tables are turned, and Joseph is conspiring against them. But unlike his brothers, Joseph is not conspiring in an effort to harm them. He's conspiring for their good. And we need to remember this about this particular aspect of the story here. We need to remember there are no accidents in life. If you are a child of God this afternoon, every event in your life is a product of divine providence. Nothing just happens by chance or by accident. It may look that way, humanly speaking. But God is working out His will in your life in ways that you and I cannot begin to comprehend. This even includes the way God deals with our sins. There are times when 
we're allow, we allow sin to abide in our lives. And after a while, we grow used to the sin. We grow used to its presence to the point where it really doesn't bother us. Or we may come to think that we've gotten away with it because we've not faced judgment or chastisement over the sin. We used to warn our son about some things that he was doing, and he said, well, nothing has happened to me yet. You know, he would, he was kind of, uh, uh, he would do things that were a little risky, you know. Uh, I don't know, can't remember some of the things that he did, but he would, you know, things that kids do sometimes, they're a little risky, like ride your bike by standing on the seat and so forth, you know. Well, nothing's happened to me yet. And that's the way we treat sin many times. We think, well, I've gotten away with it. There's been no judgment. I've, nothing's happened to me. But the fact is, God knows exactly when and how to speak to our hearts. When the time is right, He will touch all the right buttons to humble us and to bring us to a place of repentance. Remember, Absalom killed his brother Amnon because Amnon had raped their sister Tamar. And this murder in the family had created a rift between David and his son Absalom. And you might imagine it would. David banished Absalom from his sight for two full years and Absalom, in an effort to reconcile with his father, approached David's general Joab and Joab refused to heed Absalom's calls to come to his house. And so Absalom commands his servants to set Joab's barley fire fields on fire. Well, they did that, and it got Joab's attention, and he did come to see Absalom. But the point of my sharing that story is that you have a heartstring. There is something in your life that God, if God were to touch or God were to take it, he would get your attention. And for Joab, it was a barley field. For David, it was when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and it was their infant son that died. For Abraham, it was his son Isaac. And you see, God knows how to get the attention of his children, and he's not afraid to touch or to take what he pleases, to get to us, to speak to our hearts. And he has a silver cup that he can place in our lives to open our eyes, and when we begin to walk away from him, sooner or later that silver cup will end up in your sack. We've come to believe that we can get away with sin. Like Adam and Eve, we think we can cover it up with a flimsy fig leaves or of our own making. God, however, will settle for nothing less than total confession and repentance. And like Achan... We think we can hide our sin. But God knows where all the skeletons are buried and He'll uncover them in His time. So the best thing a believer can do with sin is to take care of it. Proverbs 28.13 says, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper. The best thing you can do with sin is to hate it, to forsake it, to confess it. And when we refuse to, there will be a high price to pay for our disobedience. Proverbs 13, 15 says, The way of the transgressor is hard. Now, we may not understand it all, but 
That's what's happening in these verses here. God is in the process of burning barley fields of the brothers of Joseph. God is in the process of getting their attention and he's conspiring to bring them back to him. So the first thing we see here, it involved a conspiracy. Secondly, it involved a confrontation. Now we see this in verses 10 through 13. In these verses, we find the sacks have been opened, they've been searched, and the brothers know that they have done nothing wrong. And can you see them standing there, probably with smug expressions on their faces? And as each sack is open and the silver cup is not found, they grow more and more confident. But when they open Benjamin's sack and the sun maybe glints off a piece of highly polished metal there, to their disbelief, there in Benjamin's sack is Joseph's silver cup. You see, this is the moment of truth. This is Joseph's final test to his brothers. All this time, Joseph has been testing them to see whether or not they've changed. They've passed several tests already. They brought Benjamin, as Joseph had requested. They returned for their brother Simeon. They even returned in all the grain money Uh, They returned all the grain money that had been given back to them. But this was the ultimate test. 22 years earlier, they had hated Joseph so much that they had attacked him and they had cast him into a pit. They sold him into slavery. They had broken their father's heart by lying to him about what had happened. And they maintained that lie for all these years. Now they have the opportunity to get rid of the other son of Rachel. It's clear from the text that Jacob loves Benjamin. Seems clear that Benjamin had replaced Joseph as his father's favorite son. So all they have to do is just allow Benjamin to be arrested, taken back to Joseph, and they simply could go home. Yes, it would break the heart of their father, but they had endured heartbreaks before in the past. But this was the ultimate test. These men do not know it, but they are about to reveal to Joseph what kind of men they really have become. These men pass the test with flying colors. They do not know how the cup got into Benjamin's sack. At this point, that particular fact doesn't really even matter. But they are determined to face whatever they have coming together. And so they tear their clothes as a sign of grief. And they go to face the music as one. You realize as you read this here, there's no accusations thrown at one another. There's no compromises. There's no simply, uh, uh, there's no uh, trying to excuse themselves. They simply are unified to resolve to stand by their brother. And what we see here is a a picture of ten men who are finally ready to do the right thing. Here are ten men who've finally grown up, who are willing to face whatever consequences there are together. These men have grown to the point that they can see beyond themselves. They desire to do what's right, regardless of the personal costs. And that's what God wants in each one of our lives. He wants us to come to the place where we stop making excuses for our behavior. 
He wants us to come to the place where we're willing to own up to our sins. God wants us to stop pointing fingers at others. He wants us to say, my sins are not my parents' fault. I can't blame my evil on my husband or my wife or my surroundings. If I'm going to enjoy cleansing and forgiveness, I have to deal with my sins openly and honestly. And if I'm going to have the power of God in my life, then I have to do the right thing. And folks, listen, if the, this church is going to have God's power upon it, we need to stop waiting on someone else to do what's right, and we each need to do right ourselves. God wants us to reach the place where we are willing to do the right thing, regardless of the personal costs. And I wonder this afternoon, have you reached that place? Have I reached that place? I believe we can reach that place with God's help. And I don't know about you, but I want to get there. God is not afraid to confront us at the very point of our sins in order to open our eyes for the need of repentance. These brothers are facing the things that they're facing because God is determined to get their attention and to bring them back to a right relationship with Him. And He'll do the same in your life and mine. Sin should be confessed immediately, completely, and honestly. And when it is, it can be forgiven and the blessings of God can freely flow into our lives. It involved a conspiracy, it involved a confrontation, and thirdly, involved a confession. In verses 14 through 34, when the brothers arrive back at Joseph's palace, they find him there in verse 14. No doubt Joseph was waiting to see who would show up. Would it be Benjamin by himself, or would it be the rest of the brothers? By the way, this little trick might have been, might have been Joseph's way of protecting Benjamin from his brothers. So when the brothers appear before Joseph, they bow themselves to the ground before him. Again, this fulfills the dreams Joseph had when he was a young man. Remember way back when we looked at that? Joseph's dreams. And then he confronts his brothers about the silver cup and he leads them to believe that he's able to see what they've done because he have, of his ability to divine. His ability to divine. Now, divination was very popular in ancient Egypt. Sometimes diviners would take a silver cup, put wine in it along with jewels, and they would read the jewels like some people try to read tea leaves. Uh, when I read tea leaves, that means the tea bag is broken. And I've gotten some of the tea leaves in the bottom of my cup. But of course, divination does not work. And Joseph did not practice black magic. He was just putting some pressure on his brothers. Now at this point, Judah steps forward and he delivers one of the most profound and eloquent speeches in the Word of God. A careful examination of this speech reveals just how far 
he has matured. We find it beginning in verse 16. Judah said, What shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God hath found out the iniquity of his servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also whom the cup is found. He confesses their sin. Now he doesn't name names, but he does confess the fact that they have sinned and God was punishing them. It seems, he seems to believe that what they are about to face, that is slavery in Egypt, as a direct result of their unconfessed sin, he offers himself, along with the rest of his brothers, to be those slaves, to be servants. Well, then in verse 17, we find Joseph refuses Judah's offer and tells him and the rest of the brothers to go home. He also tells him that Benjamin would have to stay as a slave. And then we have verses 18 to 34. These are the heart. This is the heart of Judah's speech. And he continues to plead the case for his brothers. And then in verse 19 to 23, he reminds Joseph that the only reason Benjamin had come with them was because Joseph had demanded it. And then in the next several verses, Judah offers himself in Benjamin's place. He offers to stay in Egypt as Joseph's slave so Benjamin can return. This is the moment that Joseph had been waiting for. He had been working for since his brothers had showed up. And he sees here that they have changed. He sees that the brothers are willing to stand together as one man. They had the chance to turn their backs on Benjamin, but they did not. Judah stands up and puts his father, Benjamin, and the rest of the brothers ahead of himself. And I believe this is a major turning point in the story here. When Judah hears, or Joseph hears Judah's confession, he sees his love for his family in action. It's more than he can stand. And we find him breaking down before his brothers and revealing his identity to them. We'll look at that in our next study more in detail. But this afternoon, there's a lesson here that we need to take to heart. Judas shows us how sin is to be handled. His actions also remind us of the very nature of sin. And I want us to consider two thoughts here before we close this afternoon. Number one, sin, by its very nature, is a very selfish thing. Sin is a very selfish thing. When sin entered the world, it entered because Eve was selfish. She chose herself over the Lord. When sin entered the universe, it entered through selfishness. Every sin we commit is still rooted in selfishness. Our sins are all about us. When we sin, we choose ourselves over any, any other person or any other thing. We're saying, I want what I want, and I do not care about the consequences. Sin is a very selfish act. When we sin, we're choosing ourselves over God. We're choosing ourselves over His will, over the church, over our families, over everything but our own selfish wants and our own desires and our own wishes. Sin is rooted in selfishness. 
When our hearts are as they should be, the Lord, His will, and the needs of others will come before our own desires. You know, you're making progress in the Lord when you refuse to sin because how it will affect the Lord's work and because how it will affect others. Most people turn away from sin because they're afraid of being caught. But a mature believer looks at sin, sees the damage it can do to themselves, to their families, to their church, to their community, to the Lord's work, and others. Sin, by its very nature, is a very selfish thing. The other thought is that the only way to get past sin is to deal with it honestly. The only way to get past it is to deal with it honestly. Like Judah, we've come to the place where we confess our sins and we get them out before the Lord and before those we've sinned against. I've already dealt with this issue earlier in this message, but sin must not be hidden. It must be confessed openly and early. When it is, the Lord can extend forgiveness and restoration. The sin is put behind us and we can move on for the Lord. In 3 John, verse 4, John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. John was saying that his greatest joy as a preacher and as an apostle was to see the people he ministered to growing and walking in the truth that he had taught them. And I know how he felt. That's the same feeling that must have gripped the heart of Joseph as he looked and saw his broken heart and he heard his, uh, or Judah's uh, broken heart and his heartfelt words. The brothers of Joseph had finally grown up finally come to the place where they're willing to make things right. And so as I close this afternoon, let me ask you three questions. Are you growing in the Lord this afternoon? At this point in your life, are you growing in the Lord? Well, how would you know? Well, you can know that you're growing in your relationship with the Lord when you begin to hate sin. You know that you're growing when you're willing to tell the truth about your sin. You know that you're growing when you when the, reach the place where you are more concerned about others than you are yourself. Are you growing in the Lord? Secondly, are, your, are there sins in your life that need to be confessed? Are there sins in your life that need to be confessed? Maybe you need to get before the Lord even today and deal with some sin in your life. Maybe you need to go to someone who you've hurt and you confess that hurt to them. Things will never be right until you do. And then the third question is, are you afraid that there may be a silver cup in your future? If you know that there are some areas in your life that are not where they need to be with the Lord, you fear He might resort to some drastic measures to get your attention then you need to get before him and deal with the matter before it's too late. This afternoon, we're going to come before the Lord's table. And it's important that as we observe this ordinance, that we come with clean and pure hearts. As we pause for 
a time of prayer. I trust that God is God speaking to your heart this afternoon that you'll deal with the sin in your life. God tells us and warns us not to come to the Lord's table with sin. And if God is dealing in your heart and you just have a trouble, uh, having trouble dealing with it, then you need to, uh, to refrain from partaking. But get these things right with the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven.